Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. As Elder Hillegas prayed, we, we know that you have created it for us as a special day because it's a special day where we can come together as the body of Christ, worship you, give back to you, hear from your word, pray to you, and learn from your word. We thank you that none of those things go out of style, that your word is timeless. It will always be true. It will always be relevant. So Lord, I pray that you would bless our time together, and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We, of course, just celebrated what holiday on Tuesday, 4th of July, as the American Independence Day. In December of 1776, colonial author Thomas Paine published the first installment of what would be a 13-installment pamphlet collection known as the American Crisis. The first installment spread like wildfire through the colonies. On Christmas Eve of 1776, General George Washington's army was ragged, hungry, freezing, and morale was dangerously low. An army of German soldiers hired by the British to fight against the American forces known as Hessians were holed up in Trenton, New Jersey, on the other side of the Delaware River, enjoying a Christmas feast. Legend has it that General Washington ordered the first installment of Payne's American Crisis to be read to his faltering and worn-out soldiers that Christmas Eve. One author says that the legend goes on to say that the soldiers, upon hearing the words, the opening words, these are the times that try men's souls. Payne's rebuke of the summer soldier and the sunshine patriot and his exhortation that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph, apparently filled Washington's men with the needed courage to march through that cold and stormy night, cross the ice-clogged Delaware River, surprise the Hessian army, and achieve a much-needed military victory for the American Revolution. But it took some words to fill them with that courage, to get them to move. A lot of us may be sitting here and feeling ragged, worn out, beaten down, and ready to give up. We've been fighting the good fight. We've done a lot of good for God's kingdom, but we're wondering if we can go on. The world is too loud, and the enemy is attacking on too many fronts. Today, God has some words for us to muster up his strength in us, to push us forward, to pick back up the flag of his cause of love and keep marching to victory. The Galatian churches that Paul is writing to have been beaten up a lot by the time Paul wrote his letter to them. Yes, a lot of that beating up was infighting amongst themselves, brought about by a legalistic comparing of one another and how well each of them was following the Jewish law. But when that infighting and conflict arises and a church takes a beating, who is really behind all of that chaos? The enemy of our souls, the lion that prowls around actively seeking whom he can devour. 
They, the Galatian churches, needed exhortation, inspiration, and strengthening. Paul had spent the majority of his letter to them, as we've seen, dismantling the belief that the Jewish law has anything to do with salvation based on the uh, with anything to do with salvation based on the death and resurrection of Jesus, and spent the majority of his letter describing what a new life following the Holy Spirit instead looks like. The Galatians may have felt that they had been put through the ringer, so to speak. And now Paul gives them a simple yet powerful call to leave what should be left in the past and march forward for God's kingdom. So what is this military speech of stirring courage that Paul gives to the Galatians for them to gain heart? to keep going in the power of the Spirit? And what are the same words that God gives to us today? To be renewed, keep going, be strengthened, and keep marching behind the Holy Spirit to battle. The first point that we come to in our passage this morning is the call. This whole overall section from Galatians 5.16 on through these verses this morning has an overall military theme. It starts out in chapter 5, verse 16, with the terms of this war that we're all involved in. The Holy Spirit himself sets himself against a life based on selfishness or the flesh. And if you remember when we went through that passage, we talked about we all must choose a side. The side of selfishness is evident and obvious, as Paul goes on to say, starting in verse 19. This side is described with a list, while not exhaustive, gives us a pretty clear picture of what is included in choosing the side of the flesh. Those behaviors include sexual behaviors outside of God's definition of marriage found in Scripture, adhering to any kind of spirituality that is not based on God's Word, destructive human interactions that will ultimately destroy a, a church, an addiction to and being controlled by alcohol, and things like these, as Paul says, that Paul had already warned the Galatian believers about. The side of selfishness, who only listens to the world and its prince of darkness, only leads to defeat and destruction. As evident as that side is, the side of the Spirit is just as evident with fruits being born that reflect a following of the Holy Spirit such as a God-given, infused, and growing love for others, an unquenchable joy that's not based on our circumstances or emotions because it's based on recognizing God's everyday grace, <clears throat> an unwavering and even-keeled peace based on God's faithfulness, a supernatural patience that's based on that unfazed peace, an unexplainable kindness based on righteous goodness and God's kindness that he shows us every day. A goodness that's founded upon God's definition of right and wrong and not the world's. A faithful confidence in God only because he's the one convincing us of his faithfulness. A meekness that remains strong but handles situations in an even-keeled and temperate humility and gentleness. And a control where one surrenders completely to the Spirit's power and transformation of our mind and soul. If you didn't pick up on it, that was just an elaboration of those fruits of the Spirit 
in verses 22 through 23. We've truly been given the riches of God's grace, haven't we? Paul's logical response to those two comparisons between a life lived for the Spirit versus a life lived for selfishness, the world, and the one who listens to it, is in verse 25. That if we say we live by the Spirit, then we better actually be walking by the Spirit. The word for walking is, is, in completely, is completely in keeping with this war theme. It's a military term, meaning to march in step behind a commander. And who is that commander if we are all children of Almighty God, bought by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is our commander? The Holy Spirit is our commander. If we say we are children of God, then we show it by marching in time behind the Holy Spirit's leading and guidance. That illustration of us as children of God and therefore brothers and sisters in Christ, all marching behind the Spirit together, is carried on to Paul's next instruction to the Galatians when he says, bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill Jesus' law of loving one another as yourself. As we all carry the soldier's pack of suffering for the cause of Christ, described in chapter 6, verse 5, we come alongside each other as we observe each other getting worn out by the troubles of life that God allows for that very purpose of experiencing His love through His children. The idea of supporting one another carries over to Paul's next topic, and that is not only in support in prayer and deference to the under-shepherds or military leaders of garrisons under the leadership of Christ, also known as elders and pastors, but it being the responsibility of the garrison under that leadership to financially support those military leaders as well. There is a reason that I went through all of that. And it was to show that maybe so, maybe not so obvious theme of spiritual warfare and the practical ways of fighting behind and under the leadership of God. In war, there is always difficulty. There is always suffering and anguish and crying out to God. There is always being worn ragged, exhausted to the bone, and wondering if it's all worth it. The Christian life is not a comfortable life. We are all in the middle of a war. That's what Paul addresses next to the Galatians, and that's what God is addressing next to us. The resounding answer is yes, it is all worth it. The inspiring speech to the soldiers of the cross is this, in, in chapter 6, ver the beginning part of verse 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good. That is the inspiring speech given to the soldiers of the cross. Don't grow weary. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't wave the white flag to the world and say you win. Pick your head up. In what ways are we not to give up? Well, in, adv in advancing some cause that has nothing to do with the gospel, sharing Christ's love or winning souls for God's kingdom? No. That is not how we are to not give up. In bad-mouthing, murmuring, gossiping, slandering, belittling, or discouraging your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is that what Paul is saying? And don't, 
grow weary in doing that. And indulging the flesh or following the world's leading? No, none of that. What are we not to grow weary in doing? Good. Good. In advancing the cause of God's kingdom of love and righteousness. You might say, well, that's not very helpful. What's that mean, doing good? If you remember, we talked about how kindness was, de was defined by goodness. And goodness was directly connected to what attribute of God? His holiness. That's what goodness was directed, directly connected to. God's purity of righteousness and what he defines as right and wrong in his word. God's holiness and standard of righteousness or goodness transcends any human or social agenda. We don't leave it up to the politicians to determine what doing good means. God's holiness and standard of righteousness or goodness transcends any human or social agenda. It's who God is. So to know what goodness is, and therefore to know what good we can't give up doing, we must look at God, how he sees things and what he's choosing to do. For instance, in keeping with the overall context of this passage, we do good by fighting against the urges and impulses of our selfishness, pride, and flesh. If those urges and impulses are fighting against what God defines as good and right. We fight against our sinful disposition towards those behaviors. Paul is already outlined as being anti-spirit behaviors and fight for the transformation of that sinful disposition into the likeness of Christ. That's what we fight against and for. In this context, Paul is cheering the, on the Galatians to do good in fighting against their fallen human disposition towards their self-focus and trying to save themselves by way of the Jewish law and to follow the Holy Spirit's guidance in doing good by having an outward look to do good to others. Take the focus off yourself. Goodness means looking outward to others. That's what we'll connect with verse 10, which we'll get to in a minute. God preserves the dignity of every human being because they are made in his image regardless of who they are or what they choose to believe. We do good by preserving the dignity of people while appointing them to the gospel of Christ. That which will restore them to God, bring them forgiveness from and peace with him and bring them everlasting joy, hope, and purpose. Well, how do we do that? The way Paul already described in his list of the fruits of the Spirit. By loving them with righteousness or goodness-sourced kindness. Here's something we always have to keep in mind as believers in Jesus. And this is very important to remember. We will never condemn a person into the kingdom of God. You will never condemn a person into the kingdom of God. In other words, we will never win another soul for Christ by belittling what they think is important, 
condemning and judging their immoral behavior or bullying anyone. That's not going to bring anybody into God's kingdom. What will bring another person into God's family is offering the love from that family to them. This is not a standardless love, as Paul already talked about, but a person who is not part of the family of God will not care about the standards of God if they haven't already experienced the love of God and the love of God coming from God's family. God has holy standards, but he calls us out of love and sanctifies us out of love. Loving someone who is not a part of God's family means to hold their salvation as the utmost priority. Not what they're doing. Hold their salvation as your utmost priority. And trusting God with changing that person the way that he sees fit and in his timing. That's what leads us to the second part of this battle cry, the second part of verse 9. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Some of us here are tired. Let's just be honest. Tired. Tired from ministering to the same person in love for years and seeing no difference. We're tired from serving in a ministry for years and not seeing much fruit. We're just plain tired. That's a reality in this world. So what can we keep at the forefronts of our minds as the battle cry to not give up and to allow God to rekindle and fan the flame of courage, strength, perseverance, and endurance again? Let's read verse 9 again. If we do not, in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. The key to this verse is the word translated do here. That's the key to this verse, the word translated do. If we just read it, the word do just seems kind of arbitrary and random, doesn't it? But the Greek is a little bit clearer. The original word means one's own. In one's own timing we will reap if we do not grow weary. But whose own timing in connection with the the context of the rest of this passage? God's. God's own timing. Paul says something very similar elsewhere. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. That's what we have to keep at the forefront of our minds. Just like how Paul had just gotten done explaining that we need to honor God with our finances by giving back to him because none of it is ours and it's all his to begin with, Paul carries that idea into ministering through the gospel. No one doing good for God's kingdom, whether it's leading someone to Christ or meeting someone's need with the love of Christ or bearing another's burden, is going to make any difference if God is not the one doing the calling, saving, sanctifying, and growing. It's not going to amount to anything. In reality, it's God saving souls, it's God meeting needs, and it's God encouraging spirits. We are merely the vessels he is using for his purposes. What may seem like a belittling thing is very freeing. You know what that means? 
Instead of looking at that in a belittling way, do you know what that means? You cannot fail. You cannot fail. It's God doing the actual moving in people's hearts. The only way we can fail, as Paul notes here in this verse, is if we give up. That's the only way we can fail. This word again is similar to this ongoing theme of spiritual warfare. It originally means in the Greek that you've surrendered yourself to the other side. Said, I'm, I'm done with this side. I'm done living for and fighting for the Spirit and doing what God wants me to do. I'm just giving up. I'm surrendering to the other side. That is exactly what our enemy wants for us to give up. That's exactly what our enemy wants. He wants us to be blinded by the lies of discouragement and allow that to make us give up and stop fighting. Because a soldier who has laid down his arms, what use is he? You don't have to fear him anymore, right? If he's already laid down his arms, so I'm not doing it anymore. You don't need to fear him anymore. That's the enemy's point. That's exactly what he's trying to do. Those lies of discouragement are exactly that. They're lies meant to make you quit. God is always at work. God is always moving. And God is always changing hearts. That's something we also have to keep in mind. We may or may not see it. It's completely up to God and his timing. We may see it in this life. Or we may not realize the impact we had on other people's lives for the gospel. Until we stand before Christ. And the things we did pass through the fire of reward or destruction. And then and only then will we know the impact we had in this life and in this world. Just thinking you're not seeing any fruit is not reason to give up. Because God is always moving, God is always working, and God is always changing hearts. The enemy wants nothing else but to discourage us enough to give up. That's his prime objective outside of destroying our souls with temptation and sin is to throw us off, to get us to give up. The sooner we realize that all discouragement in doing good for God's kingdom is lies from the father of lies, the more the battle cry of don't give up will resound in our ears and in our hearts, and the sooner we will rise up to fight with love anew. Any ministry we do for God's kingdom will never amount to nothing. God will always use it. The point is not whether or not we see any of it. The point is knowing that God is still doing something with it. We cannot base any success on what we see or what we don't see. We must base everything on the faith of knowing that God will always use the good we do for his kingdom and for his glory. And we must not and we cannot and we will not give up. We talked about the call, we talked about the cause, and thirdly, we're talking about the commitment. Paul concludes this battle cry with these words, so then, in verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. 
This takes from everything that has been said before and uses it as a punching conclusion and commitment. Any good battle plans have a focus, right? Take that hill. Fulfill that objective. Capture that base, etc. Every good battle plan has a goal. The same is true for this. You may be part of a family or know a family where something odd happens. In this type of family, the family members are nice to everyone outside of the family except for each other. In another type of family, the opposite happens. Everyone is super nice to each other, but treats everyone outside of the family poorly. God's family is much different than either one of those. As Paul writes here, we have a family made up of brothers and sisters with God as our father. As such, and as a loving family, we have to be making sure that each other's physical and spiritual needs are being met, burdens are being helped with, and inward spirits are being encouraged. But at the same time, God has commissioned us to show his love with those outside of the family as well. As one biblical scholar pointed out, when Jesus fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and a couple of fish, was he meeting the physical needs of only those who had already put their full faith and trust in him as their Messiah? No, it didn't matter who they were. They got some bread and they got, their, and they got some fish. He met their physical needs out of love regardless of who they were and regardless of what they thought of him. But if we're calling others to join our family of faith, who will want to join a family where that family's needs are going unmet? Where again, they're nice to everyone outside of the family, but inside the family it's a much different story. And if we're only focused on ourselves oppositely, if we're only fulfilling the physical and spiritual needs of ourselves and not thinking about anyone outside of our family who will even know about our family, much less want to be a part of it. Our resources, time, and spiritual gifts must be used for both. Both. God's family is different. How we do that wisely without spreading ourselves too thin or missing, po missing possibility is, is this. As observing, as Paul says here, observing, noting, and taking advantage of opportune moments. That's how we don't spread ourselves too thin. There's a focus on effectiveness for either bringing up the gospel in a relationship with someone else or pursuing an idea. So there is a certain responsibility on our part as we share the gospel to look for the most effective and opportune ways of doing it. Practically, that will also help defer burnout or spiritual exhaustion because we're staying in tune with the Holy Spirit's guidance as the commander we're following and taking missions we're confident he gives us. There's a spiritual wisdom which God calls us to desire and nurture with that way of doing things. We follow the Spirit's leading, and when he tells us to move, we move. And we move in boldness and courage. You might have been wondering, as we went through this whole illustration, 
in the past about having to choose a side between the spirit and the flesh. And he wondered, I know what I'm supposed to be fighting against, the urges and impulses of my sinful predisposition, but what am I supposed to be fighting for? I know what I'm fighting, supposed to be fighting against. What am I supposed to be fighting for? Well, Paul answered that question here. We fight for good. We fight for God's standard of good with his love to achieve his plan and bring people into his kingdom. That's what we fight for. We stand up for those who are oppressed and cast aside with, by this world, knowing that every person from conception to death is made in the image of God. We represent him in this world to take advantage of opportune moments at the Spirit's leading to bring the seed of the gospel to one more person. We are fueled by the power of love to go out in the boldness of his Spirit to bring light to a dark world. So get up, lift up, and step up. God has given to each of us a mission. If you are a child of God, bought with the blood of Christ, you are automatically enlisted in his army. There's no option B. You don't get to pick and choose what you want out of this. If you are a child of God, bought with the blood of Christ, you are automatically enlisted in God's army. You cannot sit on the sidelines, or really, what are you doing? You're aiding and abetting the enemy. That's what you're doing. Each of us here has been given a mission to plant the seeds of the gospel in love. So cast off the enemy's lies and forces of discouragement and press on in the power and strength of the one leading you into battle. Put on the full armor of God to stand, fight, and take back territory from the forces of darkness. Steal one more person from behind enemy lines. Bring the freedom, peace, and light of the gospel to one more held captive by deception and darkness. As I mentioned before, Christianity is not a game. We are all embroiled in this spiritual battle over souls. Save one more person made in the image of God from destruction. There's a famous hymn where the first verse makes this declaration. And as, as we close... I pray that this too will be each of our declarations. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Who will be his helpers? Other lives to bring. Who will leave the world's side? Who will face the foe? Who is on the Lord's side? Who for him will go? And then the response is, by thy grand redemption, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this too would be the battle cry of our hearts. That we would not give up and give in. But that we would get up and step up and do the work that you have us do that you would encourage us, inspire us, embolden us, and strengthen us. You are our courage, and you are our power, and since you are eternal, that power and strength will not cease. I pray that we would be close to you, 
that we would be in tune with your Holy Spirit's leading, to take advantage of every opportune moment, to be the most effective we can possibly be for your kingdom. So, Lord, to those who are weary and those who are tired, those who are worn out, inject them with the spirit of power. Overwhelm them with the power of your Holy Spirit. Lift their heads up. Send them back into battle with love and power and boldness anew. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.